0: Welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly, and it will play music that is unique to you. Your life's song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler, again, welcome back. Uh, this is a very exciting episode because while this is episode seven, this is the first episode that you get to hear somebody besides myself. We're we're starting into a run of interviews now, and probably the next time that I will do uh, more of a lecture is when we start running when we start running low on on people to interview. So uh, this one is uh, is with Dr. Uh, Navid Mahoudi. And uh, he is a sports medicine physician in the Boston area, in uh, the Mass General System. And I'm really excited. I've gotten to know him over the last year and a half. We actually, interv- we actually did this interview a year, a year ago. And we did it twice because the first time the audio was terrible. And I'll talk about that in a second. And the second time, he got a, he got a better microphone. And, and uh, it sounds much better, uh, but it's still not great. I'm, this is a, this is a new, new podcast. And I am learning... How to do uh, phone interviews my editor is is Taylor schroll and he's a uh, with forte Catholic and he does numerous podcasts and he is incredible at deciphering audio i'm I'm really amazed at at what he's done with mine and and if anybody can make my voice uh, sound good then then they're a genius but anybody who cares that much about audio also uh, cringes when there's a when there's a one that doesn't sound perfect, and there's nothing that they can do about it. So uh, Taylor's going to try to make this sound as good as he can, but it's it's totally out of his hands. So if, I hope that you know people aren't uh, put off by the audio, but it's it's a really engaging and great interview. So I hope you see it through. There's a, a listserv that uh, Dr. Mahoudi and I both both belong to, and a sports medicine uh, listserv. And there's between 400 and 500 people on that, mostly sports medicine physicians. And people will ask questions and then people from around the country and around the world respond back and and uh, he is known as uh you know the person who kind of comes forward with with great diagnosis great help but he's also there's a lot of of help as far as trigger points with that so I wanted to get him on here and talk about trigger points and kind of explain that and um, hopefully generate some questions and some some uh, thoughts from other people. And, uh, you know, you're, you may hear more from him. I will say that in, in the podcast. But uh, like I said, this is a, I think this is a really good interview and and uh, enjoy. Okay, so welcome. We are uh, on to another episode. Today we have uh, Dr. Naveed Mahoudi from North Shore in uh, the Mass General Hospitals. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Mass General Brigham is actually the new branding name. Used to be known as Partners. It was a uh, partnership between Mass General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital, now known as Mass General Brigham. And I work for a uh, for North Shore Physicians Group, which is a an affiliate uh, up on the North Shore, about 30 minutes north of Boston, one of the satellite Mass General sites.
0: And Dr. Mahoudi and I got to know each other through a, a listserv, which is a group of sports medicine physicians who uh, ask each other questions, discuss topics. and And I think that the the, the forward thinking physicians kind of um group together and i and i i feel like there's a lot on that list serve that do that but um, musculoskeletal and uh you know just trying to get understanding how people move and how to get them moving better seemed to be a a shared passion and as i dug more and more into uh, the things that you responded to it just it just became this glaring example of you as an expert at uh, myofascial pain and and your use of treatment of trigger points along with other things. And I really wanted to get you on today and let you discuss all that because it's it's incredibly interesting to me and a topic that I don't feel like I know enough about. And no one better than someone who's such a you know national expert as yourself.
1: Well, I appreciate those kind words. This is uh, certainly not something. My fascial pain is not something I set out to do initially when I finished my fellowship in uh, in sports medicine. Um, As you may, uh, for your audience, I'm I'm a traditionally trained family physician, did a residency in family medicine and then a sports medicine fellowship at the University of Connecticut. And I was trained to take care of a myriad of musculoskeletal problems as well as general medical issues. And when I left fellowship, I did a split practice. Providing broad spectrum family medicine care as a primary care physician for for uh, about a thousand patients on on a panel and then would see consultations for orthopedic and musculoskeletal problems and sports medicine injuries. And I, I see myself as a someone who provides non-surgical solutions for orthopedic problems and sports medicine injuries and really looks at lifestyle related conditions and metabolic diseases and how to prevent and reverse those those conditions through Lifestyle change, trying to get people off medications and help them to prevent the need to be on certain medications for lifestyle-related illnesses.
0: Right, and that's and that's another reason why we were kind of drawn together was this whole lifestyle thing, which I think you and I share. And you know, with that, uh, for listeners of this podcast, you're going to be hearing from Dr. Mahoudi a lot more because um, I consider him, you know, someone that I really look to for a, for a lot of different things, including. You know, diet and and like we talk about lifestyle choices. So, um, be prepared to to hear this voice uh, several times over uh, not only the months and, and weeks, but also years. So, um, so tell us about tell us about uh, trigger point injections and myofascial pain and how that fits into your practice.
1: Sure, great question, um, and I appreciate those uh, kind words earlier. I I, I want to say, uh, Sean, you know, years ago, I remember you posting. Things on this listserv that that we talked about maybe a decade ago, even, and just some of the ideas and things you presented really made me think about uh, different problems in terms of muscle tightness and uh, kinetic change, just in ways that I'd never even conceived or thought of before. And I can remember a handful of posts that you had put out years back that really just reframed the way I I would uh, pursue and think about musculoskeletal problems. And without those posts, I, I, I can that I, there's no way I would be doing the things that I, I do today. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you. Um, my journey, you know, I'm traditionally trained in sports medicine, uh, MRIs, x-ray, uh, cortisone injections. We do PRP. I do some PRP, play there with plasma regenerative treatments. Pretty satisfying job. Uh, really enjoy taking care of people, helped the most of my patients, was able to get good outcomes, I think. And, But there was always a, 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 a fair number of people who would come to me and I just didn't know what was going on. I couldn't figure out what their problem was. They would be pointing to areas on their body that were between joints, right? They'd point to, instead of their shoulder or their elbow, they'd point to their bicep and say, this it hurts here. And i say, okay, well, you had a muscle there. I don't really know what, maybe it's referred from the shoulder, from the neck. And then people would come in and they'd point to their, their buttock, uh, just posterior behind their lateral hip where, where there's a classic diagnosis of quote-unquote, trochanteric bursitis, and it wouldn't be exactly, it wouldn't fit. And they'd move around, and they'd point not quite to the area. And, you know, what do doctors do? What do I do? What did we do? Excuse me. What do we do? What do I do? Let me rewind that. Yeah, that's good. Um, Sure. So when people would come in, and they'd point to areas that didn't fit my box of things that I understood. So if they came in, and instead of pointing over their lateral hip, their outer hip, where the trochanteric bursa The proverbial trochanteric bursa lives. They point a little bit behind it, uh, maybe a a five six inches behind it, and they say it hurts here. And I say, well, you know, maybe that's just an odd presentation of trochanteric bursitis. And we do a cortisone injection, or we send them to therapy, and they just wouldn't get better. Get an MRI of their back, get an MRI of their hip, nothing really show, and you send them on to the next person because you don't really know know what's going on. And, And this would happen not infrequently with various conditions. You start seeing more patients, and you start seeing conditions that you just can't you're not quite sure. I can remember one patient in particular uh, who had kind of low back buttock pain. And it was just adjacent to her sacroiliac joint. And I had sent her to therapy. We had done MRIs on her hip, on her back. I had done a sacroiliac joint injection and it just nothing really helped her. And her pain was always a few centimeters, a couple inches lateral to her sacroiliac joint. And I just didn't know what was going on with her. And I sent her to a back specialist and, you know, she was a mid fifties, very active woman. And it just didn't make sense to me. You know, sometimes we, uh, I I regret to say that sometimes if if a person comes in and they have some condition or an issue that we can't figure out, um, we get defensive or, you know, deep down, I may get defensive and and think something's wrong with this person. They can't explain what the problem is because they don't fit into the box that I think that they should. And it's hard because they're coming to you as the expert and you can't figure out what's going on. So, you know, I live with a with number of patients like this that I think through and just didn't know what to do and send them to other colleagues. And it'd be the same kind of diagnoses. They'd get their back injections, their uh, 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 facet injections or epidurals. and But this lady just wouldn't get better. And this was probably around 2014. And around that time, I had been doing a fair number of trigger point injections to patients in their upper trap and levator in their neck. You know, the proverbial pain in the neck is very often tight muscles and trigger points. And this is a known phenomenon. I mean, well, in, in explain, fellowship, I had explain, trained I'm sorry. Uh,
0: explain trigger point just briefly because there's people here sure. that don't know what that is.
1: So a trigger point is a hyper irritable knotted muscle is probably the best description or definition of it. The neurophysiology of it or the pathophysiology, as you would say, like why it happens and what it is exactly is greatly debated. And some people even question its existence. But the idea is uh, any skeletal muscle, there's different types of muscle in the body. There's smooth muscle, There's uh, and there's in particular skeletal muscle. So muscles that uh, uh, go between bones and joints, known as skeletal muscle, have a particular pattern to them. And they have fibrils that the idea is those fibers, when they are overtaxed, if they are pushed beyond their capacity, instead of tearing, they will sometimes contract and form for lack of a better word a knot that's known as a trigger point point. and these trigger points can be uh, are referred to as hyper irritable so they're very tender it's a nodule people can feel these they feel them in their back They kind of reach around your you know you reach your arm be- up behind where your shoulder is or between your neck and your shoulder and palpate test around there you'll find very common people have pain in that area if you're sitting for a long period of time so, it's fairly well known that the neck is the most common, probably the most common area that, this, that these trigger points will develop. And I believe that's where the term you know, pain in the neck comes from. Uh sure. so, so, nagging, aching pain.
0: So you'll hear people talk about a muscle strain where the entire muscle is strained or a muscle mm-hmm. tear. But, but this is more about a sm- a small portions of the muscle. Like, like you said, the fibril, like a, like a fiber. Of the muscle correct. that becomes inflamed right. perhaps inflames the ones around it and and often it's a sign of of overuse or misuse or a, a, a myriad of things correct
1: correct precisely and exactly why it occurs is is not is not universally agreed upon but the idea is that tight knotted muscle fibers are within a muscle as you as you uh, clarified and that those knots can really dictate what happens to the the movement of your neck, of your head. If you have a very tight knot and you move your head in a certain way, it'll really hurt. And it can cause radiating pain to your temple, to your forehead. It can cause headaches. It can radiate down to your mid or lower back, sometimes to the back of your shoulder, sometimes down into your hand. And people think they have a pinched nerve in in their hand. And very often uh, when you see the doctor, they say you have a quote unquote pinched nerve. Because um, that's what it can feel like, but not always. This is a pretty common problem that most sports medicine doctors are familiar with, and the treatment for this. There's two basic treatments that seem to work the best. One is known as manual therapies, so massage therapists, and there's all sorts of different techniques of doing massage. There's the bullish, aggressive, just just mash on it as hard as you can and rub it out, basically. Approach versus other, like an active release technique with their gentle movements and force counter force to help persuade the muscle to relax, basically. And and then there's a, a, a technique or treatment known as a trigger point injection. Now, classically, this is done with an anesthetic, uh, often known as lidocaine, which is a fast acting anesthetic. And a number of studies on this, the, the lidocaine really isn't essential. It's it's been shown to Uh, in a couple studies to decrease post-procedural pain, but it doesn't really have a therapeutic effect. The, the, The real effect is the technique in which the needle is inserted into the muscle to release this knot that's developed, and sometimes there's multiple knots that can develop cluster together like a cluster of grapes, or the analogy I give to my patients is if you think of a cherry tomato, when I palpate your, you know, press on your upper neck, I can feel this cherry tomato. And there may be two or three or four cherry tomatoes, not quite that big, but around that size, maybe half the size of a cherry tomato. And when I'm needling, what I'm trying to do is hit the seed or seeds inside the tomato. And when I hit a seed, the muscle will twitch, it'll release, and you, it's called a local twitch response.
0: That's really good. And I'm really hungry now. So thanks. That's... Uh...
1: Often people will have multiple... Uh, sure. No, I can have... I'm just growing <laughs> tomatoes, actually. That, and my, my harvest is coming in, so... <laughs> to share some of the cherry, orange, and red tomatoes. There you go. Um, but if you if if you we can release it, and as you release the knots, it, it just it's I can feel like when I'm palpating the knot and I'm and I'm needling it. It, it I, the analogy another analogy I gave is when I feel it on my hand, it's like a frozen stick of butter, and as I'm needling it, it just melts away, and and then it becomes soft and pliable, and it releases. So um, this technique of trigger point injection. Classically, is done by you. You find the knot, you pinch it between your two fingers, you take a needle, insert it into the knot, inject a little bit of lidocaine. Some doctors will use cortisone. I don't use cortisone for various reasons, uh, mainly because that I am not convinced that it has any therapeutic benefit, and there can be side effects to it. So there's no need to introduce that if it's, if it's not going to necessarily help. Um, and you go in, you inject, you pull out, and then you find the next one. You go into it, you inject, you pull out, and you just go in this pattern, up or down or wherever the these 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 string of knots are. And so the neck is a common area where this occurs. And this was I was taught this during fellowship, and I'd see a handful of patients. We do a number of these, and when I started my my uh, office practice, uh, it was a procedure. These are things that we do a lot of, so people would send these to me, and I'd start seeing them, and I would treat the necks and. I'd get good, good relief. A lot of people would be dramatic relief, uh, how helpful it was. And then I started thinking, well, why can't we do this to the other parts of the body? Uh, you know, maybe the shoulder or uh, or, the, or the or the hip. But I didn't really know how to do it. I was d- using the older techniques that I was uh, describing of going in, injecting, pulling out. And then I was at a conference, AMSM conference, and uh, which is, I saw which is
0: American he- Medical well, Society of Sports Medicine, sorry.
1: So I mentioned that that woman before who who uh, who had that buttock pain, and she 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 just for weeks I was thinking about you know how can I help this lady, and and then a few months later I attended this conference, and there was a there's a South Af- uh, excuse me an Australian world-renowned sports medicine physician Peter Bruckner who's known as a needler a dry needler, and I mentioned before you don't really need the anesthetic or steroids. Uh, this is commonly known as dry needling or DN. Uh, and it's basically using a solid needle, a filiform needle, as they're called, which is like an acupuncture needle. And that's inserted into the knot. And it's kind of spun around and moved a little bit. There's like a pistoning technique that can be used. And that can help release the knot. So this was uh, unfamiliar to me, this other technique. I was taught the traditional way, go into the, into the knot, inject, pull out, go into the next knot, inject, pull out. So go to this conference. And I just see, I happened to see I was at some meeting and I saw him do this technique on somebody and I had this eureka moment like and he was actually needling another colleague there, sports medicine doctor there, uh, buttock muscle. And it blew my mind. Just seeing the way he was doing it and and for lack of a better word, how aggressive he was doing it, pistoning this needle in and out. And I had a eureka moment. I said, That's it, and I couldn't wait back I couldn't wait to get back to my my back and just started applying this type of technique using the needle, the needles that we use, the um, hypodermic needle. And I would do the traditional way of pistoning, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the traditional way of injecting a little bit of lidocaine, but I would use this pistoning technique and maneuver the needle, trying to release those little seeds in these proverbial cherry tomatoes. And it was like magic, the, the results I was getting with people with all different Parts of their body and the shoulder to the calf to the, to the hip, um, abdominal pain at times, back pain, neck pain. Uh, people were sending me all of their mystery kind of cases, and uh, it, it, I was getting really good, A lot of my patients were doing really well with it. And as I started to explore this, I, I didn't really know. What this was like, I, I was trying. To, like I said, this was I wasn't. I wasn't taught this. I started reading about it more, and it's probably two years into doing this where I discovered Dr. Janet Travell and Dr. David Simon, and they are the pioneers really in this. And, and Dr. Travell, what's amazing to me is she was she's a, a genius, an absolute genius, uh, a woman, of course, physician who. I think it was in the 30s or 40s when she was in uh, working in hospitals, would discover people, as she wrote in her books, discover people who would have uh, back pain or chest pain or arm pain while they're in the hospital. And depending on whatever hospital service that patient was on, if they're on the cardiac service, the cardiologists would say that it's their heart, if they were on the gastrointestinal floor, it would be their GI, they're having gas. And as she would examine them, she discovered that they had these tight knots that were really painful. And as she would massage them or eventually she progressed into needling them, they'd get am- amazing relief. And she ended up being President John F. Kennedy's personal physician in the White House. And was the first woman ever to be the president's uh, physician. So, you know, this is the 1960s, 62, where she was doing this. So, you know, what kind of genius was this lady who was a president's physician at a time where uh, there weren't as many women as there are in medicine now, um, so I, I discover her books a couple of years into doing this and I'm I'm flipping through and I'm just blown away. Because she has pictures and diagrams that are similar to, to what I'm doing, although I'm I'm kind of making it up as I go, uh but it's getting a sounding relief and, and when I first started doing it, I use an ultrasound. We have an ultrasound machine and you know, going in and kind of poking somebody with a needle multiple times is a little intimidating for a physician, of course. Uh, but with an ultrasound, my confidence level was much higher because I could look, you could see the tissues, you could avoid nerves and vessels. So I, I had a great degree of confidence in, in what I was able to, I developed a degree of confidence, I should say. And eventually, as I, I eschewed, I just, I, the ultrasound wasn't necessary anymore for this procedure. I still certainly use an ultrasound for guided injections of other types. But with this, it's really the feel of the muscle that's key. It's It's knowing where to look, knowing where the referral patterns are. And looking for it, and as I've done more of this, it's become—I mean, probably seventy-five eighty percent of the patients I see have a myofascial trigger point, point component to their pain. And when that is treated and addressed, it can just—it can be magic. It can take care of so many different other issues that they have, and it can be immediate. It's, it's in many cases it's diagnostic. When you have somebody come in and their shoulder hurts or their hip hurts, and you think they need therapy, and maybe it's a trigger point and you send them to therapy and they get mashed on and they're massage and stretch. You don't really know if, if, if the therapist was doing, a, doing appropriate work, if they were too aggressive with them. And what I found, if I can find the trigger point and release it, people will get up and they'll walk around and they say, my pain's gone, hundred percent gone or 90% gone. Uh, and that is in a way is, is very powerful as a diagnostic tool. And it can help me avoid sometimes doing advanced imaging or unnecessary testing. Uh, so I use it as a, as a diagnostic as much as a therapeutic tool and it's, it's completely revolutionized the way I, 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 uh, provide muscle double care to my patients.
0: So, um, the physical therapists in our crowd will, will hear, will hear Travell and they'll, they'll know exactly who they're talking about because most physical therapy schools probably, and I don't know if it's still the case, but I know that, uh, my wife is a physical therapist that she just went on and on about Travell and, and the books and, and the things like that. Now, our massage therapists, I'm sure, you know, you, they'll talk about the fact that it takes months to get to the point where you can feel what you're looking for. You feel you felt it all the time. Your brain just didn't know it was feeling it. Do you find yeah. that there's a period of time where, you know, you've gotten to the point, like, for example, you'll have a student in your office that you're trying to show and they'll feel it and you'll go, yeah, you're not. You're, you're probably not feeling it yet. It's It's kind of one of those things that through practice and through time – uh, you get better and better at at feeling these uh, trigger points.
1: Absolutely, I, there's you know we call this the operator it's the operator dependent. And when I have I have patients who come to me who have had dry needling or have had trigger point injections. In most cases, after if I say you know what let me let me try it on you let let's see. Uh, they they'll say that was way different. When I do the procedure, they'll say that was way different than what I what what I had before. The the, the twitch responses are more robust. Um, and I'm pretty aggressive. I have a I have a uh, I have residents who shadow me uh, not infrequently. And and just this week I had one uh, who who was with me. And almost always uh, people don't palpate firmly enough. And the one thing I find is comparing the contralateral side. Uh, You know, I talk all. We talk a lot about myofascial pain, and you mentioned your wife and other physical therapists and massage therapists. But if you look at the traditional orthopedic and sports medicine literature, there's a paucity of this. If you look at the at the main uh, databases that most physicians use, one would be UpToDate, for example. The most probably the most popular uh, reference resource that any physician in the country and the world uses. If you look at the differential diagnosis of shoulder pain. Myofascial pain is not even listed. If you look at knee pain, it's not even listed. And I, and I would argue probably 80% of the people I see who come in with shoulder and knee pain have a significant myofascial component. Uh, just today, I saw a patient two patients, one in the midst of COVID. We're doing a half volume, but I'm, we're still seeing a fair number. I had a gentleman today who had had a partial thickness rotator cuff tear confirmed on MRI who had months, a couple of years of shoulder pain, actually. He had three cortisone injections over the course of the last year. And uh, he came to see me and ultrasound confirmed, I did it in the office, that he had a partial thickness cuff there, But his function was, was quite good. He had very good cuff strength. His range of motion was better than would be expected. And he had, he had several ragingly tender trigger points to the mid-deltoid and anterior deltoid. And I released those and he was immediately 90% better. I mean, immediately. He'd move his arm around, big smile on his face. And I see this routinely. Uh, the hard part is knowing which, one, which, which of these is going to stick. You know, is he going to be better for months? Uh, is it going to be a week? And by and large, uh, most people will see significant relief for a, for months, if not longer. Sometimes they'll need a couple treatments. And the most important factor in this is identifying the underlying cause, right? What? Why did that trigger point develop? And the main assumption that I found in talking with colleagues and reading literature on this is that the, the assumption is that the trigger point is always secondary to some other cause, right? There's, you have arthritis, you have a cuff tear, your postures is off. There's something you overdid it actually overdoing it would be, that would be more of a primary cause, but there's some other structural or other, there's a leg length discrepancy, something that is causing this overloading of a muscle. And we have to find what that is and fix that. And I agree with that. And I think the, the dogma is that that's probably 99% of the time that's the case. But what I'm finding is it's very often uh, one or two rounds of needling combined with uh, manual therapies. Not even always do we have. Some people won't go. You tell them, you send them, you tell them this is the treat, treating the symptom. The therapist is going to treat the cause. And, and they feel better. And they don't go to therapy. And then they come back in a month or two and say, I didn't go to therapy. My shoulder feels great. I'm 90% better. I got one other spot and I'll release that. And they do very well. So my hypothesis is that a good chunk of people have primary trigger points. They just develop for any number of reasons. You treat them, you release them. Very uh, Most often, effective needling is the, is the gold standard, I would say. And this is, this is evidence-based. Uh, most of the articles written about this would, would describe Dry needling or trigger point injection as the gold standard, most effective treatment with manual therapies, and a couple studies showing comparable outcomes to to effective needling. Um, but you treat them and they get better, and that's a strong argument to me. I mean, this, we have to explain what's going on. I have to be able to look and say, okay, why are they getting better? What um, did I get lucky? Were they going to get better anyway? I mean, those are all uh, reasons as placebo. You know, those are all hypotheses, but. When you see it time and time and time again, it's compelling to think, okay, there's something here that we're overlooking that really is a, a, a present and we're just not identifying it and not, not offering patients this treatment and really studying this to the level that we need to.
0: You know, we'll see that, uh, you know, and that's kind of one of my things is I always wonder what else is going on, but we'll see people with, you know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, trochanteric or hip bursitis, you know, where a person will get a pain right on the outside of their hip. And, and what I'll tell them is I'll say, you know, we're going to treat this one time. And if, and within the month of it comes back, you're, you're walking wrong and us continuing to treat the Bursa is, is counterproductive, you know, if we don't fix the other, but there's times when you'll inject that Bursa and, and the problem was the Bursa, you know, they irritated it doing something, um and then because of that they're walking weird and then that leads to problems after problems and and i could see the same you know and i i kind of point back to i have a a lateral a lateral calf pain that i roll out before doing any any working out you know and i do a lot of a box jumps and double unders and i do a lot of Jumping with, you know, I'm in my 50s, and I feel like jumping and sprinting are two of the two of the things that that go first. So it seems like I continually try to do these things that I'm not supposed to be doing. But if I don't roll out my calf, it hurts. And in my mind, what I was going to do was I was going to fix the flexibility around my ankle. I was going to, um, you know, improve the strength through my foot. So I worked like crazy on that, and it and it has never taken care of it. And I keep thinking to myself, you know, really, what I need. Is I probably need a trigger point injection into that muscle because now that I'm past those things, or even if even if that had nothing to do with it, that muscle that muscle spasm is is begat is begetting more muscle spasm.
1: No question. I, I it, and I, yeah, I, I we gotta I gotta I gotta hit that knee. I gotta hit that calf for you. Calf, <laughs> it, it, it's it's funny. About five years ago, I had a a, a woman come see me. Who's, uh, she come in for, she's a triathlete and in her mid forties, she picked up early forties, picked up running and now is just running all these, uh, triathlons and marathons and multiple per year, just really got the bug for it. And she came to see me for this very tight, painful calf that was bothering for a month. She could barely walk. She was limping into my office and she was a friend of my assistant's at my, uh, former assistant of mine at the time. So we, you know, we kind of get her into the office. Uh, and I examined her. She thought she had torn her Achilles, and she she didn't. It was, she had a trigger point in her calf, and I did some. Uh, she could she could barely dorsiflex her foot. Her leg was she was limp. You could barely bear weight on her foot, let up your pain, and uh, could barely bend her foot upwards, dorsiflex. And I told her she had trigger points. I explained what it is, and I did uh some trigger point injections or KPIs for her in the office right there. And she had a bunch of these twitch responses. Got up and was basically dancing around the office, couldn't believe it. You know, the jaw hits the floor kind of a thing. And the hospital did a whole story about her. And it's just, uh, we can put that in the show notes for a little two-minute video the hospital did about her story. Very good. But this has become, I, I feel so fortunate and thankful for how I can help people with these, uh, with these types of problems. But what you're describing is a classic trigger point, that, that outer calf, the inner calf. Some people will develop uh, plantar fascial pain, arch pain that is very often referred from from a calf, a calf trigger point. And that's my little secret. People come in with arch pain and maybe they'll have even a little thickening. I'll look at their, with the ultrasound, I can look at their plantar fascia and there's measurements we can do and see if it thickens, see if it actually meets criteria for plantar fasciitis or fasciosis, which is a thickening of the plantar fascia related to overuse and poor foot muscle strength and calf tightness. Uh, but very often, even in the setting of significantly thickened plantar fascia, consistent with what's actually shouldn't be called plantar fasciosis, but most people call it fasciitis, I will ne- needle their calf, find the trigger point in their calf that they don't even know is there. I'll poke on their calf and they'll, they'll want to punch me in the mouth. It hurts so bad. It's so tender in their inner upper calf. Is, and, and, and I'll needle that area and instantly their, their foot pain is gone. And what's even more remarkable is their tenderness, right? When they come in and say it hurts you, and I'll poke on their heel or on their bottom of their foot. It'll be very tender, and I'll mark that spot, and then I'll needle their calf. They get up, walk around the stay, it's gone. My calf is a little sore, but my foot pain is gone. And then I'll go and I'll palpate that area where they had tenderness initially, where the mark was, and that tenderness is gone. It's like a magic trick sometimes. So, you know, I have theories as to why that develops and how, uh, all speculative. It's fun to kind of think about it, but that has to be explained. We have to be able to explain what's going on, and as we can explain that, I think it's going to improve our ability to provide robust musculoskeletal care uh, for all of our patients.
0: What are some other, just just like one or two other areas where you're just like, you know, nobody looks for this, and and this is what I find.
1: Yeah. So um, knee pain and shoulder pain, those are the two lowest hanging fruit and and elbow too, tennis elbow, lateral elbow, but we'll start with the knee. Um, I I can't count how many patients I've seen even after knee replacement who still have knee pain. You know, when you look at studies on this, about 80% of people who have knee replacement, 80% are very satisfied. The other, there's another 20% that still are in pain and it hurts and they'll go and see two, three, four different Orthopedists sometimes will get x-rays and they say, you know, everything looks good. You're, you're the, the, the alignment is good. The operation is perfect, right? Uh, but they still have pain. And some of them will make their way to me. And I, and I tell my orthopedic colleagues, send these patients to me. I mean, this is the, this is the respectfully the bane of the orthopedist's life, right? It's a the person they do a, a joint replacement on who still has pain. It's like, what else are you going to do? It's, it's very frustrating for the patient and for the orthopedist. But I say, I invite them send them to me because very often they have trigger points in their vastus medialis, their inner quad muscle, and in their vastus lateralis, their outer thigh muscle. And those correlate. If the pain is on the inner part of the knee, it's very often that BMO, vastus medialis obliquus on the inner part. And if it's on the, if your pain is on the outer part of the knee, it's, it's your vastus lateralis, the big quad muscle on the outer part of the leg and the calf muscle as well. The upper, uh, uh, the upper gastroc, the, the upper parts of the, uh, closer to the knee, the gastric calf muscle uh, can, uh, is implicated in knee pain. And there was a study in Ontario done in 2012 where they took patients who were on a, on a wait list for knee arthroplasty and they're on a six-month wait list, right? In Canada, I guess there's wait lists uh, for, for knee uh, knee arthroplasty and they treated these patients with uh, trigger point injections. And like 92% of them had, uh, I believe the number was, had months of pain relief, and it led the authors to even question what is the, what's the physiology and the cause of pain. We often will see in our in our patients people with severe arthritis, bone on bone, who have minimal or no pain in their knee, and other people who have very mild arthritis who have severe pain. So the severity of arthritis doesn't always correlate uh, with the pain. And there's other studies looking at changes in, in the musculature, in the, in the architecture of the muscle, in particular, the vastus medialis, uh, looking at different stain studies of the architecture of the muscle and how there are changes in it. So for me, the question is, is it the chicken or the egg, right? Is the muscle being underused, atrophied, not being exercised, and then it leads to mechanics in the knee that cause arthritis, or is it the arthritis that develops through genetics and other factors? that leads the muscle to try to respond to it that leads to those architectural changes. I I don't know. I don't I mean, we don't know. Um, But to even think in those terms of which one comes first, I think if we think in those terms, it's going to help us in our diagnostic ability and how we care for our patients.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think the more that we, you're right. The more that we question our thought question, our, our known, or I put that in quotation marks, known ideas about what causes what, the better off we are, you know, you, you like having that person in the room that has these weird ideas because every once in a while they're going to throw one out and it's going to change everything. So Mm -hmm. it's good to have, I think it's great to have, to have alternative ideas. So, so you mentioned the shoulder.
1: Yeah. So with shoulder, uh, I think the hidden secret there is the deltoid. Um, the deltoid muscle is the most overlooked cause of shoulder pain, completely ignored. You know, I mentioned uh, Janet travel She worked with a, a colleague, David Simons, Dr. Simons, who was... A, he's a genius as well. He was an astronaut. First first man to... I think he went the highest in a hot air balloon up into space. I mean, unbelievably, he was on the cover of Time magazine before he uh, went to medical school in 50s, I think it was. Uh, but another genius who... Uh, uh, did a lot of work in, in, in muscle pain and he wrote an, he wrote an article uh, 13 years ago um, 2007 uh, just before he passed away but and, and the title of the article has a very compelling name so when patients come to see me I'll ask them I say you know what what specialty of medicine uh, takes care of the heart right cardiology what takes care of the eye ophthalmology what takes care of the skin dermatology right these are easy questions Then I say what takes what specialty takes care of muscle and it's like this blank faces, right? There isn't one, right? There's no specialty of medicine who treats muscle, right? There's physical therapists, but they're, they're not physicians. So we're, we're looking at medical specialties. So Dr. Simons wrote an article uh, entitled Orphan Organ. If you Google it, you can find it. It's freely available. And he just describes how, in his estimation, the majority of, of humankind's ailments and aches and pains have a myofascial origin, a trigger point origin, but this is completely overlooked in the medical community. And I don't understand why. It, it, when I explain some of these ideas and I talk about this and people see the treatment and, and, and they feel better, and then I explain just what I've kind of been sharing here, it, it, to me, it totally makes sense. But there's some kind of a barrier wall that um, it's hard to get these ideas into the, into the mainstream, for lack of a better word, and there's good reason for that because so much of this is operator dependent, and we don't have clear imaging modalities that show the trigger points. They are so many different theories of how they develop. People will get treatments that don't always work. There's different styles and techniques and how, how they treat them. So we're really in the infancy. You know, when people used to do surgeries decades ago, hundreds years ago, all sorts of different uh, ways of treating and and doing operations. And finally, when it became more codified and just systematic is when we started to make real progress in surgical outcomes. So that's the kind of thing we're going to need to do uh, with this because it's the Wild West right now with, with all these needling techniques and what people do. And I'm guilty of that myself because this is all... I, I'm just kind of... It's, it's safely experimenting with people, but... Uh, experimenting isn't the right word, but but this is a is a is a, quite a safe procedure. I mean, there are risks to it. Uh, there's reports of nerve injury and bleeding. Nerve injury is probably the most common thing that people can develop uh, with it. You can hit a nerve and uh, it can cause... Uh, there's reports of wrist drop and other things like that, but um, it, very rare. And I often think, what's riskier? Doing the procedure or not doing the procedure? Because if you, if you don't offer this to people and don't do it, and they're in a lot of pain, they're going to go and they're going to find something else. And oftentimes, they may get a uh, surgical procedure that's higher risk, more expensive, has greater morbidity to it, and and higher costs, all of the above, and they're still not going to get better, because all the while, the problem was uh, likely a myofascial trigger point.
0: Okay, so a uh, quick question on uh, physical therapy with trigger points, because here, I don't know how it is in Boston, but here in Kansas City, it seems like we're getting a, a growing number of physical therapists who are do, doing dry needling, and and some chiropractors, and you know, there's chiropractors and physical therapists who uh, listen to this podcast, and I don't have a problem with, with you know, necessarily with that, it's just that with the rise in dry needling with physical therapists, I, I have a job for them. I need that person to come out of there stronger. I need their, you know, thing, things mm-hmm. improved. And it feels like there's a there's a few that are doing it every single time they see them and it becomes the bulk of what they accomplish. And, yeah. and I'm left going, man, I, I, you know, I really need you as a physical therapist to be getting People stronger and their motion better and their mobility better and and you know is there a point where that becomes too much or am I or am I being too critical?
1: That's a great question. Um, so I think you know there's there's a thing in in I think two sociologists out of I think it was Cornell I think there were sociologists known as Dunning and Kruger uh, came up with this Dunning Kruger effect right and if you Google this Dunning Kruger uh k r u g e r dunning and Kruger, and they they talk about a, an expert's confidence in what they do is much lower than a novice's confidence in what they do right and as you gain experience in something, when you first start doing something that's new, you know you do a new diet you you find faith or religion, and you're you know it's you're just on the mountaintop preaching this new thing that you've done and and this is the best thing ever, and here we are, and then you do it for a while and you realize, okay, well. It may not be as effective. There's cases where uh, it, it doesn't work as well, or I missed this, or I missed, the, I missed the patient who had this problem and I thought it was that. So you go into this valley, and then as you progress and more experience doing it, you start to master it. And I think a lot of times what can happen is people get into this, the Dunning Kruger, and they can't get out of the, out of the, the, the high confidence with low ex- expertise. So to speak, and I say this very respectfully because I I lived there for a while, and you don't know what you don't know, and that wisdom is is minimizing that little box of not knowing what you don't know. Um So, to answer your question regarding therapists, I think certainly a a a a, uh, a dedicated or a, a a guided therapy program that you provide should be followed by the therapist. When I, when I treat, I have confidence in the, in the diagnosis I make with my patients and the type of therapy I want for them to have. And when they come back and if they've had a different treatment or if, they've, if I've done needling and then they go to the, the PT and, they, and they've had needling there, that kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way. My expectation is the therapist is going to call me and talk to me, take the time to call me if they're going to change the treatment plan or if they're going to do something that I've already done that they're going to let me know uh, what they're doing. But I think the temptation is to do a lot of needling because it's a procedure and it tends to reimburse well. So, uh, and, and I should say well, relatively well, or depending on uh, what, what types of other procedures you're doing. Um, so I think the more, the more directed we are as physicians in our prescriptions and what we want done, what we think the problem is, and if the therapist, if the, if the therapists are listening communicate with your physicians. I have a number of different PTs that they have my cell phone number. They'll text me. They'll call me and we'll talk to their patient. I'm sending you this person. I've tried this. I've done that. And that really builds a relationship. And I think the patient gets better care. And I'm very receptive to getting those phone calls. So I would encourage the therapists out there to talk with your docs. And hopefully you can have that relationship. The docs who are sending you patients, text them, write them. Most of them should be amenable to, to that conversation. Uh, And if if they're doing the needling and it comes back and they're not getting better, to redirect and rethink things and say, are we treating the victim or are we looking for the culprit?
0: Very good. Very good. Okay. So um, tell us um, how people can get uh, in touch with you or follow you or, um, you know, what's one way that uh, patients can contact you or other providers can reach out for information?
1: Appreciate it. Thank you. So, I have uh, my website is just my name, Navid Mahudi, MD. Um, I am not particularly active. I used to be more active on Facebook and uh, on social, but not as active as I used to be with COVID and and uh, life circumstances. Um, but certainly, my uh, my practice is up on the North Shore of Danvers. I I have dreams and visions of kind of doing more teaching with the trigger point uh, therapeutic kneeling techniques. So. Uh, hopefully more to come with that. But if you if you uh, check my my um, website out, you'll see some descriptions of what I do. And I'm in the process of updating uh, updating my website.
0: And and I think that if if somebody you know as a group was was really interested in in getting uh, you know some formal instruction from you, I don't think they'd have a have a any trouble um, contacting you and and perhaps setting something up.
1: Absolutely, they can reach my office. Uh, my, uh, I'm, you could, they can reach my office and leave a message, and be I'd be happy to uh, to to uh, contact. Uh, we could we could work something out. But uh, I work for a large organization. i you know, my dream is someday to be able to do CMEs. And there's a number of people have emailed me on the listserv sort of asking questions about uh, how where I learned this and how do I do it. And and uh, I, it's, it's a great opportunity for a number of us who are interested in this to get together and. And really ask these hard questions and, and figure out how we can best serve our patients.
0: Well, and I think there's a, and, and you know, I'll say this from experience. I think that there's a huge difference between I, I hired someone who knows how to do trigger point injections versus I, I hired someone who uh, is considered a national expert on trigger point injections. And you know, I mean, that's the thing is, is that there's there's very few people uh, like Dr. Mahoudi who uh, can explain and can talk about the, you know, more in depth, not only that, the, the years and years of experience you've had of not only doing it to your patients, but also teaching other physicians. And I think that, I think that people should pay attention to that. And, um, you know, I mean, we're all learning from each other. We do call it a practice of medicine. Uh, but some of us have more to teach in certain areas than others. So I really appreciate you coming on. You know, we have a, we have a, uh, another, uh, episode planned with you for, uh, diet. And then, uh, there's several more that, um, you know, we, uh, doc, uh Dr. Mahoudi and I kind of bounce ideas off each other. And, uh, especially with this lifestyle stuff, I think that things are, I think that things are hard to figure out because there's so many mixed messages out there about so many different things. And, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll, you'll do different things that, like for example, you know, uh, with diets or with, or with stem cells or whatever, and there's, there's not findings for, for months or even years. So people can be really fooled. And, and I think one of the things we want to accomplish with this, uh, with this podcast is kind of rooting out the people that, that we think that are not, are not great. So, um, I plan on having, uh, Navid as a, as a common or a, a significant recurrent uh, visitor on this, because, um he shares the same passion i do for all of that so i want to thank everybody for uh tuning in today and um thank you dr Mahuti.
1: My pleasure thanks so much for having me look forward to chatting again
0: okay thank you for listening we greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe also Visit BodyGuitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships. Build them. Until next time, Body Guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners... Get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine & Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.